Welcome to The Strategist, episode 1260. I'm your host, Annalise Klingbeil, and with you, as always, Stephen Carter and Corey Hogan. Good evening. This, this is great having you do two shows in a row. Two in a row. Yeah. Two in yes. a row. I'm back. Subbing it's in really Corey exciting. instead of Zane. This is yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. We've re- reunited. How are you guys? Well, I didn't get to go bike riding because I broke my bike last weekend. How did we you, haven't even talked about it. How did you break it, Carter? Sheer power. Just, I, uh, just strength not crashing again no i i was pedaling too hard and i wrecked You're so strong. the hub oh, so no. okay got yeah, it that's so power Corey understands what all those words mean yeah. you can yeah, heard all those words experience. independently i just you know i don't need a need a new drivetrain it's going to cost a lot of money so i think we have to increase the patreon rates oh good yeah okay, yeah. okay. do you even know how to do that Nope. He did okay. post an episode though, Corey. Did you have to yeah, help you know, at all? I was floored. I was floored. It's there was no faults. It actually went up with no errors whatsoever. That's it's a new year. It's like the well, not, not really, fifth but. try. And you did it, Stephen Carter. You did I it, did. buddy. I did. There I were no more you. mistakes to be made. <laughs> at least I had I had made them all. And I was like, I don't have any more mistakes. And you know what? The best part is every time I did it. Corey got more and more angry. So I was pretty sure it was a bit by the end of the last one. It seemed when you could, like might you were doing it on purpose. It might yeah. have been. I'm not sure. I, you I just don't found a new way to fuck it up. Like you found a new way to fuck it up every time. No, I did. And then you didn't. And I'm you don't want you, repeats. You know, you got to go with a new way. <laughs> now now Very he good. knows those, Corey. Very good. So this, watch out. Carter can no, post I... episodes all the time I'm now. I'm pretty replaceable now. I mean, I noticed yeah. he still didn't figure out how to use the Twitter account to no, post it. No, because the Twitter so. account, none of us have the password now. Because you well, have- Well, none of us have been like... on it for ages, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not yeah. on Twitter. And uh, I mean, it's just going to Patreons anyways. So who the fuck cares if- Yeah, uh, good point. Yeah. Good times. Okay. Do you remember when we well, used to okay. insist on it being called patrons instead of Patreons? And now no, we're no over there. We give up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Speaking of giving up, are we going to do this podcast <laughs> yeah, or what? The- Speaking of giving up, welcome back, Annalise. <laughs> I thought you were going to put like a Patreon plug there while you went on and no. on about it, but no. Okay, no, guys, let's uh, let's jump into it. Let's start with our first segment, our first segment of 5-2 Decision. Big news on Friday across the country. The Supreme Court of Canada ruled that much of the Impact Assessment Act, better known as Bill 69, is unconstitutional. This is being framed as a big win uh, for the provinces and a loss for the federal government's environmental goals. Uh, I want to kind of dive into it. I think Friday was an interesting day. I'm I'm curious, I guess, to start off, if you guys were surprised by the decision and surprised by the fact it was 5-2. Let's start there, and then there's lots of different uh, threads we can pull apart. Corey? So, was I surprised? I wasn't after Stephen Carter predicted this wouldn't happen, <laughs> which basically assured that it would with 100% certainty. So uh, but. Yeah, beyond that, I mean, it's interesting. I didn't really know what to expect. This is not, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I know that the Alberta Court of Appeal had said this should happen and they used some very strong language, but frankly, they do that a lot on things that the Supreme Court then turns around and says, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, fundamentally, as you go through the decision, it is rooted in a view of Canadian federalism that exists. It just seems to have been going out of style as it pertains to the environment, right? It's this idea that you've got these 
you know, watertight compartments. These are areas of provincial jurisdiction or federal jurisdiction or areas of overlap. And in areas of overlap, a certain amount of you know cooperation is required, and you can't just unilaterally make these sorts of decisions. So, um, you know, maybe we shouldn't have been surprised by it. I think that there were a lot of people saying they suspected that the federal government would be successful in court on net. They obviously were not. And I think we'll wait and we'll see how all the lawyers write this up and assess it and look at the various pieces and say, oh, this makes sense. Or, hmm, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily called that. But that work is still to be done. You know, we've got the instant analysis, but not the deep analysis. And uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see where it is from there. But the, the, the bottom line and the most important part here is it it is a very big win. Uh, for provinces who are standing up against it. And it is a black eye for the federal government who, uh, you know, largely treated the province, at least in a political sense, as though these arguments were ridiculous. Um, Clearly not ridiculous as the Supreme Court has now weighed in. Carter, do you want to jump in on that? Like, is it, and, and we can get into kind of the response and the strategy, but absolutely big win, like huge win, historic win is how the provinces are framing it. Um, there are others, there's legal experts and federal officials, obviously, that are saying premiers are exaggerating the impact of the ruling. Is is this like a as, as big of a deal as the provinces are saying it is, Carter? Well, there's two there's two ways to think of this, I suppose. One is in the legal context, and I'm going to defer to Corey's legal expertise uh, in the in terms of the, the actual legal <laughs> lawyer, piece. Lawyer, but, bold. <laughs> but in terms of the political impact, this is significant because there's there's been a lot of things that um, provinces have been fighting with the federal government about, and this just gives them this gives them a win, and in this win, they get the opportunity to kind of say. Um, you know, this is a significant problem. And uh, this, you know, this victory just shows us the overreach that the federal government has been pushing on us from the beginning, right? So they will, if you're a federal or you're a provincial politician, you don't need to stop here and say, well, these are the, these are the boundaries around this ruling. Instead, you can, you can push it all the way through and you can say, well, you know, this is the same problem we've got with equalization, or this is the same problem we've got with the pension plan. This is the same problem we've got with other environmental regulations. You know, it's all overreach. You know, the carbon tax, overreach, 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 overreach. And this ruling gives them the the ability to say that. Now, is it rooted in, in legal reality? No, politics isn't rooted in legal reality. So this is just another weapon that provincial premiers get to use against an increasingly unpo- unpopular federal government. Um, that's good politics. So, you know, as much as it bothered me to, to see Danielle Smith, you know, running around and Scott Moe all so excited about this victory, um, because yeah, I, I I don't know I I guess I'm turning into an environmentalist I'm scared shitless about where we are with the environment I think that more environmental protection is probably good not less but you know whatever Scott Moe and Danielle Smith seem to think that this this is the the future continuing to rely on our our resources but I digress um, this is going to be uh, an excellent political opportunity for them and I would imagine they will use it. Um, to the fullness, you know, as far as they can. Well, this, I mean, this is one of those interesting uh, realities that you've sort of stumbled into here, Stephen, which is, yeah, you might, you might feel very strongly about the environment 
it might be the most pressing issue of the of the day. Um, yeah. The Constitution doesn't give a fuck. The Constitution was written by a bunch of old white guys in 1867. It's been modified and it's been interpreted since then, largely by other varying groups of old white guys, but that's changing over the past several decades. And um, it doesn't necessarily mean it, it's up to the task. I mean, we tend to venerate these documents and say, well, this is the proper reading of the Constitution, therefore this is proper. Uh, and maybe that's wrong because maybe it doesn't afford us the tools to deal with today's challenges. Yeah. Our constitution does offer an um, option for that, and that's amendment. And you know, maybe that's something that in a in a kind of a, a a different country people would look at. But obviously, modifying the Canadian constitution for a lot of reasons is very very challenging. Yeah. But look, I mean, this is in some ways this is the uh, the Canadian replay. It's the Canadian remake of an American tale, right? Mm-hmm. Just because the American courts determine that you have the right to own guns doesn't mean that it's not kind of societal suicide to allow what's going on here, right? Just because the American courts say this is what the state's rights are doesn't mean that the state's rights are in any way serving the people of the United States. These documents are just documents at the end of the day. And I'm not sitting here saying, oh my God, the court was wrong, tear it all down. I'm just saying, you know, legal right and moral right are not always the same thing. And that was true before this ruling and that's true after this ruling. And uh, and now we just sort of have to pick up the pieces. And within the frameworks we have, we have to decide, do we change the frameworks or do we atta- uh, do we attack moral right in different ways within these frameworks? Well, the Carter, you're with, sighing. Yeah, <laughs> you I mean, okay the problem with, with that is that the framework that's available for us to attack this is challenging, right? The primary framework that we have is the elections, is elections, right? And... Um, we w- we continue to elect a lot of bad governments, and they can be bad governments on a number of fronts. But until such time as the economy is trumped by the environment, um, in terms of a primary election issue, uh, it's going to be near to impossible to imagine provincial politicians not using some sort of an attack on federal politicians as a means to gain popularity. This is what they've done. It it makes electoral sense. Um, but just because it makes electoral sense doesn't mean that it's the, the most sensible thing to be doing in the long run. But totally understandable. Totally get why the provinces were ecstatic and the uh, the feds were a little bit tails between the legs. So t- talk to me about that political opportunity and that political strategy. As we've said on Friday, victory lap from the provinces. What, yeah. if you were advising the provinces, what do they do in the coming weeks and months after their Friday uh, victory lap? Well, I think you've got to be able to find some sort of a uh, a way of keeping this in the public eye, right? And in Alberta, I think it's going to be relatively straightforward because they had already mapped out so many different things that they were going to go after the federal government for. This fundamental unfairness that has become their narrative, um, that's going to continue to be uh, their talking point. So in Alberta, I think that they've got it pretty well lined up. Um, and I think the same even with Scott Moe. I mean, does this ruling in some kind of perverted fashion make it easier for him to get the notwithstanding clause through, right? Like notwithstanding this other situation, like this is unrelated, but it does seem to indicate that federal overreach is this constant problem that we have. And they just don't understand the good people of Saskatchewan and, and our, you know, great fear of, uh, of transsexual youth. I mean, it, or, you know, like it's just, it's insane to me, but, but this is, this is the reality in which they will live. 
But again, this is a conflating of legal versus moral. You can legally use the notwithstanding clause, but what is the morality of the notwithstanding clause? What I think is interesting about what Danielle Smith said, she made a comment and it was, I mean, politicians are going to politician, right? They're going to say the things and they're going to make the victories seem bigger and they're going to wrap that up in bigger language. But she said, if you believe in fairness, common sense, and the sanctity of the Canadian Mm -hmm. constitution, today is a great day. Um, okay, so first of all, the, <laughs> Bold the, the decision wasn't about really the first two at all. It wasn't about fairness and common sense. The judges weren't sitting there, you know, with chewing tobacco, spitting into spittoons and saying, by God, you know, those pointy heads in the federal government, they just don't know what common sense is, right? That's not what yeah. they were seized with. They were not seized with fairness. In fact, the decision goes to great lengths to say, hey, the environment very well might be the biggest problem of our time, but that doesn't mean the federal government gets to ignore the Constitution under the rule of law, right? See previous comments. It was about this Constitution, but like, what is the sanctity of the Canadian Constitution? I mean, I get get behind, we're a nation of laws, but there's nothing about the Constitution that says to me, it, we can never change it. There's nothing about the Constitution that says to me, it is certainly right in all circumstances. I mean, the Canadian Constitution is... It's not even just a written document. It's also a series of decisions and like kind of a body of precedent there. And and like this thing is almost definitionally going to morph over time here. So, you know, like all of these things go back to kind of that earlier point of conflating the moral and the legal. And there seems to be an awful lot of that going on. And just because something is legal, again, does not mean it's right. Well, just to pick up on that, I mean, there's this religious kind of fervor uh, for the American Constitution, right? It was written by people who were smarter than anybody ever, right? And this this religious fervor in connection to the American Constitution um, means that, you know, people are being ruled from the 17, you know, 1790s. It doesn't really make sense in the overall scheme of things. Now, does this make sense? Does this ruling make sense in the overall scheme of things when we're looking at an environmental catastrophe that really doesn't give a shit if uh, CO2 or um, dirty water is produced in Alberta and is then, you know, travels through other provinces, travels into Dodson's Bay? No one gives a shit, right? Um, the fact is that it's going to universally impact our country. And the Constitution wasn't designed to deal with that. Didn't have any any construct of it. And it, and ours is only, how many years old? Like 50? 50 years old? Less than that? Our constitution. Um, I mean, our constitution which, is arguably a day old, two days mm-hmm. since this decision. Yeah. Like, But, you know, you're thinking maybe 1982 and the Constitution Act there that provided the charter and, and a number of other things. But, yeah, like, I mean, I think that, I think that also, again, I don't want to be just kind of beating a dead horse here, like banging this drum for too long, but... The courts, the courts were interested in whether this was an appropriate division of powers. And look, I mean, the case they make is not a bad one in the sense that courts in the federal system have long been concerned with the idea that one jurisdiction could come in and claim to override the actions in another jurisdiction by squinting and looking at their power in a different way, right? And saying, well, uh, because because I interpret this either as a criminal act and I have power over criminal law, I can do whatever I want in your jurisdiction. Or because I have power over civil rights, and, you know, and uh, in this case, that, that means something a little bit different. It's more like what you're allowed to do locally. Well, then I can override federal law, which can't happen because there's like kind of a, 
you know, supremacy of federal. But the point is, they like to elbow into each other's jurisdictions, and sometimes the courts need to settle it all out. And sometimes the courts can't, and they say you got to figure it out as kind of partners. That's the court's job. Like, the court is the referee for the rules of the game. Doesn't mean the rules of the game are sufficient, right? Doesn't mean they're going to bring in the crowds the way we need them to. Um, but, you know, a lot of a lot of time and effort gets spent in in wishing things were different. What I would encourage instead, people who support the aims of uh, of the federal act that is largely been gutted now, you know, in terms of uh, the ability to go in and regulate major projects, say, if that was, you know, that was a means to an end, that means is no longer on the table, the end has not changed. What is available to us that is a legitimate federal power? What is available to us that is a political act we can take? What can we do now? Like, there's no sense in bemoaning it and wishing we lived in a parallel universe. And Corey, back to the statement from Smith that you were reading from. I mean, you're you're the comms guy. What? And it's so complicated, right? Like, most people are not lawyers. Most people are not constitutional lawyers. In terms of the framing and the communications and the strategy on that victory lap and then the coming weeks, months, what uh, what's your strategy? What would you advise? I mean, in broadest strokes, exactly what they did, which is to make the victory look as big as possible, to latch yeah. onto a few specific quotes and say, see, this is great evidence. I mean, in some ways, it was very funny. They were referencing the Court of Appeals decision, which had very strong language, the Alberta Court of Appeals, uh, basically saying this would be the death of federalism. I can't remember the exact quote, but something to that effect. Uh, and ignoring the much more measured language of the Supreme Court, right? Mm -hmm. Because that served their communications interest. It raised the stakes. It made their victory look more epic. I guarantee you, if it had been 5-2 the other way, you would have had an entirely different approach. It wouldn't have been about the epicness of this. It wouldn't have been about how big of a decision it is. It would have been like, well, we're greatly disappointed. We're going to continue to assert Alberta's rights in this. And by the way, these three paragraphs that somewhat criticize the federal government's actions in this parallel universe where the feds win, I'm going to talk about them for the next 30 minutes at this press conference, because that's what governments do. They make their victories look big and they look their defeats look small. And, um, and of course, that's what we can anticipate. And that's certainly what we've seen even from the federal government saying like, oh, no big deal, big deal. You know, sorry, but it is a big deal. You know, the, you know, this Impact Assessment Act has been a major piece of discourse in this country for many years. Uh, literally the day after he was sworn in as premier, Jason Kenney was talking to uh, the Senate about the need to rapidly overhaul this bill and all of that. It's, it's been part of the conversation for, for four years here. So, Carter, let's say you're advising the feds uh, in this time of, you know, provinces accusing federal overreach, obviously knowing there's many more issues to come where they can now reference this decision. Like, what's, what should strategy from the feds look like in the coming months? Well, the beauty of the Canadian oh, oh, Constitution... Stephen. Stephen, just a sec. Okay. Oh, sorry about that. Sorry about you that. You go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I was waiting for that. It was a little late. It's a little late, 18 minutes in. Um, <laughs> what are you drinking, Corey? Yeah, let's talk about this instead of Stephen's answer for a bit. Yeah, no, it's... It's one of these be... San Pellegrinos. Oh, yeah. it's fancy. Hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Carter, Carter, go a ahead. A lot of money. Um, yeah, what was the question again? <laughs> Fev. Uh, would you like one of these too? <laughs> yeah. Listen, there are many ways to come at this problem, right? There are uh, multiple ways of, uh, you know, 
tagging, attacking this. This was one of them. I would suggest just going back to the drawing board and say, saying, okay, what is it that we want to achieve through this bill? Right. Um, Jason Kenney christened it the no more pipelines bill. Was it really about no more pipelines or was it about looking at the significant, you know, looking at significant capital projects in, in, and how they would impact the environment. And what can we do? What is this ruling now telling us that we can do? If you look at what the federal government is doing, like, for example, even in the housing sphere, which Corey gets very excited about if we talk about housing, but it's happening across loves the country, it. Corey, not just here just in Alberta. Loves it. But just get but into when, the weeds we on Calgary about, City Council there, Carter. Yeah. But, but the housing money that is being promised to Calgary is being promised to Mississauga, is being promised to every city in Canada because that money. Uh, and that's skipping over the traditional partners of housing, which is the provinces. So the government of the federal government has more levers to play, uh, to play with and to pull to ensure that they get their outcome that they want. They just need to they need to make the choices. They need to decide how they're going to do this. And then they need to, to actually do it. Corey, do you, do you agree with what Carter's saying? I, I mean, I guess I do and I don't. And I'll let the lawyers kind of weed through it and say, these are the salvageable parts of the acts. These are not the salvageable parts of the act. But fundamentally, where this thing failed was on the government saying we can designate a project and then it falls underneath this assessment uh, you know, framework. And then we can come in and we can make all sorts of different rules. And, you know, the writing for the majority, you know, the, the court was was pretty unimpressed with that, right? Like it was this idea that, well, then you can kind of come in and you don't even seem to care if it's rooted in federal powers, you can move forward. So yeah, they do need to go back to the drawing board and say, what were we trying to do here? But it's not just that. I, I mean, it, it's not very fun or satisfactory, but it's, they've got to go back to the drawing board and say, what are we trying to do here? And is it actually rooted in an authority that we have? Is this actually a power that the federal government has? And if it doesn't, well, then, yeah, it's going to be 10 different street fights in 10 different provinces to figure it the hell out. I mean, then that's that's unfortunate. And that makes our federalism a little bit messier than we'd like sometimes. But that is that is the system that we have. So, you know, it's going to have to look a little bit different going forward. How do you think the fact that the decisions five two changes the conversation that we're having? Like it's it, it, Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, it's funny. I don't know. I don't know if it matters yeah. at all because it's the Supreme Court. If it had been one of the courts of appeal and it was closer, you'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I wonder what's going to go on there. I guess insofar as that is relevant, it would be, that's that's not exactly uh, the kind of thing that makes you think if the next case comes in and it's a little bit close to this in construction and it looks a little bit like a federal overreach, but maybe not as much as the Industrial Impact Act, uh, you know, maybe they can get away with it. It's, you now think like, no, the, the court looks pretty firm on this, mm -hmm. right? Like the court looks like they've got their mind made up. But honestly, I don't even know if that's true. It's 5-7 in a court that went fully booked with nobody saying that I've got to kind of sit this one out, there's nine. So, you know, it, it could have been five, four under a different context, potentially, for all I know. So it's tough to say. Unless there's anything else either of you want to add, let's leave that segment there and talk about our next segment. Corey, your favorite topic, conventions. I do love conventions. Uh, our next yeah. segment, we'll call this one 81%. So NDP, federal NDP, had their convention this past weekend. 
a few headlines out of there. Um, one about Pharmacare that I want to get into, but first let's talk about the approval rating. 81% is what the leader's approval rating is. Carter, is that a good approval rating? Well, I mean, it depends, I think, entirely of what we're comparing it to. So when we're comparing it to Ed Stelmack and Allison Redford, 78, 81 was great, <laughs> right? 81's fantastic. Um, when we're comparing it to Jason Kenney's 51.4, well, I mean, 81's fantastic. It's great. Uh, but then there's all these other instances where, you know, people are getting 90, 96, 90, 98, 90. I mean, there needs to be some sort of a convention. When Joe Clark stepped down in 1980, 81, whatever year it was, 83, whatever year he stepped down on the leadership review, and because it, it was uh, 67%, and he said that wasn't enough, he immediately started a cascade of these leadership reviews there where we don't have a clear rule what is enough, right? If, if, if it is 50%, then it's 50%. You know, if it's... 60, 67, 78, 80, whatever it may be. But in this particular case, the problem was that someone said, well, we're expecting more, right? As soon as you set your expectation that you're going to get 85 or 90 and you get 81, then it's an insufficient number, right? You need to know what your party wants. Right now, less than one in five members of the New Democratic Party think that the, that Jugmeet shouldn't continue as a leader. One in five. In any other circumstance, that would be an overwhelming majority. But because of the circumstance that we've created with these leadership reviews, um, now Jagmeet Singh is going to be looking at this saying, I may not have a mandate. And the media is going to hound him until such time as he's absolutely fucked. Because Ed Stelmack didn't last, Alison Redford didn't last, and I really don't think Jagmeet Singh is going to last. Because we have set this, this arbitrary rule that just determines uh what what kind of real support is required to be the leader of a, of a party I'll, I'll bring Corey in but who who's we and who who and when was the arbitrary rule created joe clark allison redford every political it's a convention operative, for sure yeah. every convention that we've decided now that we have decided to give the keys to the asylum to the lunatics the members Right, the delegates. <laughs> as soon as we gave them the fucking control, it was bad enough giving them the control to elect the leaders. Now we're giving them control to unelect the leaders. I mean, look at this. We have given people the ability. Like, if Jugmeet Singh ran tomorrow and got eighty percent on the first ballot, he's an unbelievable victor. Right? We have chosen to give uh, to to develop a stupid parallel process that doesn't make sense. All in the all in the uh, the desire to create some sort of you know more democratic party. Well, fuck that. Who are these nineteen percent of people that didn't want Jagmeet Singh? You know, I don't want Jagmeet Singh, but I wasn't at the fucking convention. <laughs> Tell us what well, you really think, Carter. Yeah. Cor okay. Corey, eighty-one percent is that a good approval rating? Uh, no, I, it's not. Um, it's not, uh, all of this is contextual, but it's not, it's not for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, there's no opponent. There's no heir apparent. There's nobody organizing against Jagmeet Singh. And normally when you see the number starts to slip towards the Jason Kenney style 51.4, that's because there are people gunning for somebody. There is an organized opposition. There might even be an organized opponent. And so in those situations, 
um, 81% very strong shows that actually that organization doesn't have any kind of jam within the party. Um, and so, you know, he remains in control. But if you're in an organization where there is nothing really that is gelling against you and you still get one in five people being like, you know what, I'd rather not, right? There's no opponent. There's no opposition. I'm a delegate to a convention. By the way, not membership delegate, right? So Mm -hmm. delegates often come to the convention thinking as well about the best interests of the party, not wanting to embarrass the party, not wanting to embarrass the leader. They they play the games. We talked about this when we talked about conventions, right? They understand their role in the pageantry of it all. But in that context, they say, I just just assume not. Like one in five. That that's actually a very, very weak showing in a party. And I'm sorry, I'm not trying to pick on Jagmeet Singh here, but in that kind of setting, that's a very bad number. Nobody's against you, my man, and yet a fifth of people were against you. And and this is a leadership review um number that is going to haunt him. I believe that firmly, because now people who have maybe thought about organizing against Jagmeet Singh will say, well, maybe I should. Guy looks pretty weak. Guy looks pretty exposed. And um, and I think that the, the dynamics will be shifting as a result of this number. So how do you play that number, one, if you're him, and two, if you're that person sitting on the sidelines saying, now's my opportunity? Well, the only thing you can do if you're him is put on a brave face and say, yeah, very strong showing. Look at this, 81%. That'd be, that'd be like an A in a school where an A is 80 to 83%, you know, I mean, I'm doing really well here, gang. It's, it's great. Um, if you're, if you're somebody who's going against him, you, you actually start having the quiet, hushed conversation with people, more pointed version of what I just said, which is like, Hey, I don't know. Like, it is, I think we know this is not working. Even the membership seems a little bit fatigued. Carter, is this that in that opportunity for that person on the sidelines to start? making their moves yeah i mean uh, we've we've seen this with stelmac and we saw this with redford um klein got 56 i mean stelmac and redford i think are the two closest at 78 percent and they were gone right like um the the they don't leaders aren't made to last anymore right and the fact that he's lasted this long how many elections has it been Corey? i mean has it been because uh, he was 2015, he came in after that. Yeah, it's, after it's been Mc- two. after after right. Mulcair gave up the uh, the uh, the sure victory that was was certain, right? Uh, when, when we did the liberal strategy episode in 2015, uh, which caused them to to roar from third place to yeah, victory. It was all us, but it was all us. It was all us. Yeah. So amazing. you're welcome if you like that. And we're <laughs> it was sorry. An amazing episode. Yeah. Amazing episode. Um, but the. The, the truth of the matter is that the NDP tend to keep their leaders too long. Uh, Andrea Horvath, I think now in hindsight, we can look back at Rachel Notley with a different view. Um, you know, oh, people she's get, still there, man. Okay, never mind. Can we edit that part out? Uh, <laughs> what, Lou what, might, what are you doing? What Lou might call. I don't want that. You might hop on Anyways. the Discord. Carter, how long? Okay, too long. How, how long? How long should we have leaders for? 
Everybody, listen, I'm not saying this is how long we should have leaders for, but here's the pattern that we're seeing now. You're one and done. The greatest example of that, I think, is the is the Federal Conservative Party or, or the the what used to be the Progressive Conservative Party in Alberta and now turned into the UCP. You get one and you are done. The the BC Liberals, you lose, you're gone. That's the ball game. You you lose, you're gone. Right. Everybody who was going after Christy Clark on the 801 club with their little buttons where they would get rid of her at 801. The moment she lost the election in 2013, you know, those people, um, people are, are gunning for these leaders now because leaders are the only representation of the brand that matters. So if you are, you know, if you can only get 80 percent of your own members, how are you expected to grow the party to grow the number of seats that are vic- that you win? And and that's reflected in the the polls that uh, the NDP are seeing now, too. So I just I think that we've we've set ourselves up for failure just even by allowing these things. But ne- once they're there, you're not going to be able to undo them. So here we go. Well, look, I mean. I, I do think that no conversation about the NDP giving their leaders extra extra shots at bat here is complete if you don't talk about Jack Layton, who had, you know, 04, 06, 08, and then 11 before he had or, his breakthrough to be the official opposition, right? And was languishing in the high teens in every election until that. Yeah. It's not like there was like a bit of a notch up each time. People were saying, oh, I don't think it's going to happen with this guy. I don't think he's the guy. I don't think he's the guy. And then he was the guy. Right. Was so, he the guy or did everybody else lose? I mean, we 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 rewrite these histories to, you know, Brad Levine gets gets to dine out on that thing for a long time, but is this <laughs> is this really, you know, Brad, Brad Levine strays in the strategist. You know, yeah. come on, Brad, you know it's not true. But, you know it's not true. Carter, I'm, uh, I'm curious what you you don't like the one and done, but you say that it's how it is. Like, what what do you think? Do you think people should get a second chance? Like, ideally, if you're setting the rules, what do you think? What should leaders be allowed? I don't know, because I don't think it's I don't think it's a, a one answer. I think that you should be allowed to set your narrative within the audience that you're you're trying to win over. And sometimes that narrative takes an election to set. Other times it takes two elections to set. Um most of the time, you know, it's not one. I mean, I think that Aaron O'Toole uh, still had still had some discussion or so, still had a story to tell uh, Canadians. He just didn't get a chance to do it, um, you know, because the party was just seized upon the idea that that he lost the election instead of them losing the election. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know that there's one steadfast rule that we can point to and say, well, you know, that's the outcome that we should be looking for. Let's just get rid of them the second that they fail. I think, um, you know, I'm probably more on the side that you have to be at least being able to to build the party. I'm far more interested in per- performance in polls than I am in performance in elections. Uh, I think Aaron O'Toole could have done something really interesting. Uh, I'm not sure that Andrea Horvath ever could have in 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 uh, in Ontario. How does it change the equation when there's not that natural like next person that that person waiting that person um, that that next in command? And I guess we can get into Corey what you wanted to talk about in terms of like why political parties vote to support leaders they may not actually like. Yeah, well, it, I think when there's um, a natural opponent there it can cut a couple of different ways one is that 
you you actually have like an enemy, quote unquote enemy mm-hmm. as the leader, and you have somebody to define against, and that's a real individual, and that real individual has strengths and weaknesses, and that's a point of contrast that you can really kind of organize against. Um, on the downside, however, that is somebody organizing against you, who is talking to people, who is going out there and selling memberships and getting riding presidents and making sure delegates are coming to conventions. So it that's one dynamic. The dynamic of there's nobody, and it's just you're you're kind of fighting against this perfect leader who may or may not ever exist and almost certainly won't, has its own challenges. So it's hard to beat somebody's imagination. Like their hero in their imagination will always mm. be better than you. But um, it's not a real person, and that means they can't be doing real organizing. They can't be going out there selling those memberships, getting those riding presents, pulling out those delegates. And so... That's the uh, that's kind of the the trade, and it it's just an entirely different type of um, challenge for a leader's office, uh, a, a general malaise and dissatisfaction versus an insurgency, and they've got to be dealt with with very different tactics. And, and one of the problems I think with the kind of the malaise, which is what I would say that uh, you know uh, Singh is dealing with right now, is um, you often try to resolve that by by going to the base and getting them excited, drumming them up. And, and that, that can backfire because all of a sudden people say, yeah, that is actually what I want. And I'm not getting it right now. If they don't feel that you can be the vessel to deliver that. Carter, are you okay? Or did that, did you get bored in that answer there? No, I mean, it's like <laughs> your just... eyes non-stirly. worse than my toddler. Are you, are you okay? Yeah. Here's the thing. We should video this all the time. We should. Because people would pay extra. In fact, um, they do. We just haven't done it for we a haven't while. We haven't done it. Uh, it's second, second point is that, you know, I, I think this perfect, non-perfect opposition, you know, so in some regards, the perfect person... Like, like, there's a case to be made that Rachel Notley felt like she couldn't step down because who would be the next leader? There's not enough. There's not another person. And not just Rachel Notley thinking that. I don't want to describe her as some egomaniac. That's Lou. But this is... Um, <laughs> this is Get in the Discord, Lou, Carter. Brad, these guys are going to come for you. You're just going to... You know what? No, the, but, it's going to be but great. Everybody around them is saying, well, there's no better leader than you. There's no one else that's going to come from the, from, the, from the grassroots that can do this as well as you can. And there's some truth to that, right? I, I think that... You you know, Jack Layton stays because there's no one who's seen to be as good, right? Whereas, you know, Mulcair loses because there are seen to be other players that could come in, right? So Jugmeet Singh is being viewed, I think, as someone who's, there's other people who could come in. Uh, now, I think that they are viewing them in the perfect sense. I don't think that there's any one person like Mulrooney or Jim Dinning or um, uh, Ted Morton, who was gunning for Stelmac and Redford. You know, like some of those people who are actually doing the gunning of those four people I just mentioned, three of them didn't get elected. Right. Only only Brian Mulrooney was able to beat Joe Clark in the subsequent leadership. Uh, and one could argue that if Joe Clark hadn't run in that leadership, maybe the outcome would have been different uh, because Joe was just running against uh, Brian in kind of a different construct. Regardless, all to say that these processes, these leadership battles, because we have put so much effort into defining the party by the leader, because we have, to, you know, that has been our primary effort, then this is the unintended consequence of that. And in politics, as in life, unintended consequences are generally going to be the driver because, 
you know, we don't see down the road, um, you know, the, the, the strength of the New Democrats should be the strength of the New Democrats, the whole party. I mean, them more than anyone should be seeing that their party is strong because of the brand, because of the movement. But well, they've seen themselves eroded by the Greens. They've seen themselves eroded by the Liberals. There is no party anymore. There's only the leader. And that's why, you know, it's, it's more challenging. Corey, jump in. Yeah. You know, it, we could talk about this and we could argue about a lot of these things from a lot of different angles. And I'll throw one on the table. I desperately need to. Like, I don't agree that Mulcair lost because people saw somebody else coming. I think Mulcair lost because he was outflanked by the liberals on the left and outflanked as a change candidate by a guy named Trudeau. Yeah. It's fucking insane. And then he tried to do a deathbed conversion to being anti-oil and gas just before a convention in Alberta. Like, there's there's a lot of more fundamental reasons why Tom Mulcair lost the leadership here. Uh, but I think that those fundamental reasons, um, you know, there's some truth in all of this. And there's some truth that you can pull out of it that leaders tend to get themselves in trouble when they are on one course for a while, they see threat in that course, and they try to leap back to a different course. So where I think I want to pull this mm -hmm. back to the weekend, and where I think that Singh might have a bit of a challenge for himself here, is he went into that having been the person who uh, organized, coordinated, negotiated the supply and confidence agreement. That supply and confidence agreement has never really been that popular, I think, with the rank and file, but certainly understood as something that could provide an awful lot of NDP policy to, to people. Uh, but he went in there as that guy. People are not enthusiastic about that. I think part of his vote being where it was, wasn't in part because of that, a sense that like he wasn't taking the fight to the liberals. And now coming out of this convention, he seems to be a different guy based on the votes of his party, saying he's really going to hold uh, Justin Trudeau to account. Doesn't really enjoy hanging out with Justin Trudeau in this supply and confidence, but just really wants to get these things and now has a new red line on Pharmacare. And, um, and certainly his caucus talked a lot tougher on that than he did. So now he's in a whole different jam. Because he was the guy walking on supply and confidence, and now he's the guy threatening supply and confidence. And I just don't know that that's a tenable position for a leader, and I don't think that ever works for leaders. I just don't. I think you've already lost the people who think, how dare you do this with the liberals? You're never going to get them back, and now you risk undercutting your own agreement if your agreement fails. Let's let's talk about that more. And I want to talk specifically about the pharmacare thing. So one of the headline stories that came out of this weekend's convention um, is that the federal NDP plans to make pharmacare a central issue in the next election if the liberals don't move on this issue. So to your your point, Corey, um, they they passed an emergency resolution basically saying the party should withdraw support of the uh, the NDP liberal agreement if the liberals don't commit to a universal, comprehensive, and entirely public pharmacare program. Carter, what yeah, what, what do you mm. like phar pharmacare as as the issue as a major issue? Good strategy, bad strategy. What do you think of that? I don't know. I mean, I think that most Canadians, I, I don't actually know what most Canadians face in terms of pharmacy costs. Um, you know, I know that we are seeing an ever increasing number of pharmaceuticals prescribed to people. And I don't know what the, the you know, I know there are some people for whom that cost is a hardship. 
Um, I know that for a, a large group of other people, they're covered by uh, various insurance programs. And, and provinces have low-income insurance programs in place as well. I'm not sure that PharmaCare hits the way that some other thing, I think that PharmaCare probably hits the same way that the dental program that was just passed hit. You know, it, it's a good thing, I think, but it didn't impact my, impact my life. Corey's got 14 or 15 children. Did it impact your life, Corey? Um, yeah. You know, uh, Annalise, you're, you're, I don't know, a kid. I don't, I don't actually pay attention to your <laughs> personal life, I'm assuming. You're our mother. Is that she's, true? She's actually mentioned her kid once this episode even, yeah. So Oh, I really need yeah. to pay attention. <laughs> Anyways, I mean, I just don't think it changes people's lives. And I think that that's the problem with pharmacare too. Because the personal insurance programs are relatively good and where there are gaps, there are provincial programs. I'm not sure that the federal government gets to step in and say, you know, here we are, we're here to save the day in the same way that, that uh, other programs might. So I think that the NDP... If I were the liberals, I'd be like, okay, let's do this. You know, like, I don't think we need to, to focus on a pharmacare program. I'm not sure it polls that high. I certainly don't think it polls that high uh, compared to other issues that are really impacting Canadians at this particular moment. Corey, I want you I want you to weigh in there and maybe play that out, right? Like if, if the liberals say, yeah, whatever, and the NDP are saying, well, ag- agreement over unless, like how... What what happens next? Well, I, let's take that in reverse. So, if the agreement's over, it doesn't mean Parliament falls. Like it, it, that is a logical conclusion. If everybody then says we're voting non-confidence in this government, but it's not a foregone conclusion. You could say we're going to just take this vote by vote, which is what yeah. a minority government would do anyhow, mm-hmm. right? And so, well, it might put it on a more tenuous footing. It certainly doesn't end the government tomorrow. So. Even in kind of the most, quote unquote, worst case scenario for the liberals in terms of the supply and confidence agreement, they still get to govern until somebody says they can't govern. And if I'm the NDP, I don't know if I'm feeling that excited about going to the election. If I'm the Bloc Quebecois, I'm thinking maybe I can get some stuff out of the government as well and, and provide them the additional support needed here. And I just think there's a lot of ways for the Liberals to govern still, which is part of what makes this threat not entirely as strong as the NDP at the convention seemed to think it was, right? Like, I think yeah. that's the that's the bottom line for me here. But if I'm the Liberals, I, this we've talked about this in the sense of the Liberals before. If they figure out their story, if they've decided to define themselves in the terms of, like, kind of a middle ground between two extremes or whatever here, well, then maybe you want to let it die on PharmaCare and say, mm-hmm. we love PharmaCare. We're willing to pilot it. We cannot go all in at this moment. You know, Canada has a bunch of other things we've got to deal with right now. We're more focused on these other more targeted affordability measures. We're more focused on housing. Like in a funny way, it gives you a way to to kind of inoculate yourself against the conservatives saying you're too left wing by saying, no, there's something to the left of us and we want to be much more moderate than that. Right. Again, it all depends on what the story is that the liberals want to tell. Um. Or there's a version where the liberals say, yeah, we're going to do pharmacare. We're going to go all in on this. And then um, and then we know we've got a different version of the liberal party, too. So, like, I don't know. I mean, I actually just don't think it affects the liberals as dramatically as the NDP seem to think it does. This might be one of the weaker things that they have to hold over the liberals. Because I also agree with Stephen. I'm just not sure that the country is there right now. I think there's a general feeling that government has gotten 
big and there's been a lot of programs lately. We do seem to be in one of those kind of classic rightward tilts for the country Mm -hmm. overall, just based on the state of polling. And I don't know. I mean, I'd have to look at it and not just on the top lines, but where those votes are coming from. But I'm just not sure PharmaCare is a get. Well, Carter, strategy-wise, then why do you think the NDP are going so hard? Like, I've, I found it interesting that that was kind of the, the main headlines were approval approval ratings and then PharmaCare. Like, what what is their thinking? What's the strategy behind going so hard on this? Just because it's fundamentally who the party is? Well, yeah, I think that this is, I mean, I think that sometimes when you're in trouble, you go back to the things that have made you the strongest. And healthcare, I mean... yeah. Strengthening healthcare is generally not a bad play, right? Yeah. Like in general, governments get better when they strengthen healthcare. Um, they become more popular and they become better. Um, and the, it's not like the NDP need to to worry about you know we're going to be in this situation, we're going to have to pay for this or any of the the negative elements from it. This is a, a very small promise for them. Uh, that gets them to something that they think would be great. I think it's certainly better than subsidizing rents for Canadians and pushing up landlord profits. But, you know, that's that's me. I think that the NDP is also kind of at the end of ideas. And this might be the reason why they need to get rid of Singh more than anything, is that the ideas that are coming are last election's ideas, the election before that ideas. You know, when you are really trying to do this properly you need someone who's coming in with a tremendous amount of new ideas and love them or loathe them you know daniel smith and and uh and and our our good friend pierre polyev are coming in with uh with new ideas you know you 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 kind of nailed something for me here Stephen. i think this pharmacare strategy would have killed in 2015. I think it's exactly where people were in 2015. But after a few other national programs that have been put on there and stacked on there and have started fights with the provinces and changed the dynamic of federalism and and even harken back to how we started this conversation Mm -hmm. talking about the Impact Assessment Act, right? There's, uh, you know, do you really want to go in and create a new single payer pharmacare program distributed by the provincial governments, most of which are conservative? Like what's What's the play here? And you're going to have an awful lot of opponents to it right away. And you're going to have a lot of Canadians saying, you know, and look, I, my own personal views on national pharmacare aside, and they are pro, I think it's a good idea. You're going to have a lot of people saying, we've done a lot in the last bit in terms of expanding the government. Maybe we need to take a beat. Maybe this is something to look at in 10 years. Maybe a pilot is the right thing. I've, I've had two polls in the field in the last month. Neither one of them have picked anything up on pharma. Yeah. Great. That doesn't Uh, surprise me. Neither one of them. And, you know, maybe it's just the structure of the polls. Maybe it's the structure of who I'm at, you know, who we're targeting, whatever. I mean, there there certainly could be holes, but I'm just not thinking that this is the thing that's on the top of the mind. It's the salience question, right? Like, I bet you if you polled on it, you'd see a certain level of support for it, probably even majority support. But when you look at salience, when you compare it against other things going on, when you look at issues, sequencing, timing, I think that's where support for PharmaCare is likely to fall down because, I mean, you're right. Um, I I can't think of any polling that I've done or seen recently where this has naturally bubbled up 
as a major issue unprompted that Canadians are looking for action on. So what would that issue be, right? Like, let's let's say you're, let's say the NDP hire the two of you, say, we heard your podcast, you guys have fresh ideas, we need fresh ideas, we want to be different than the Liberals, we want to be Nothing different than the Conservatives. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, like uh, Stephen Carter. <laughs> 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 let's, let's, See, I, I pulled my punch, you didn't. That's let's good. say, yeah. let's say they, they bring you guys in, Carter, like, what what is that issue? What What is that issue that's doing really well that's like a hot talker and it's not housing because i think polyev has like claimed that for himself no but there's a cost of living question right like it's not just about housing it's also about cost of living you know there there are insurance problems across the country there are you know one of the big things that's happening is is uh you know we, we're seeing a bunch of people who will no longer be able to afford insurance because of climate change right so you Stephen could- carter doesn't even want you to have a boat so <laughs> That's how bad things are right now. You know, I take some heat from that. You know, you yeah, need to right? bring it back up. <laughs> took some heat from my environmentalist friends, I might add. Yeah. Who also apparently like boating. Anyways, my, my point is this. The, the, there are places that they could go in on. I would think climate change and cost of living would be great ways to target. And I would probably go in on significant uh, emitters, putting some sort of a tax on them and then redistribution of that to low-income earners in some fashion. And then I would probably do something along the lines of uh, really managing a cost of living thing. Cost of living on utilities, like, you know, um, so things that we used to think of as not utilities, internet access, cell phones, and um, we still and things that we still think of as, electri- uh, as utilities, such as electricity and insurance, these things are out of hand mm. right now. These are costs that have gone far too far. And I think that there might be an NDP style of program that would enable a national attack on those types of industries as opposed to uh, some of the provincial work that's been done with either, you know, with insurance or, or something like, like a, a climate change uh, bursary that enables you to, to subsidize your insurance rates. I don't know. Um, but I certainly would here. be, I'd be testing, I'd be testing in those, in those categories. Corey, anything to add or any critique of, uh, Carter's idea? Why well, I always I, critique. Why? I think that going kind of a bit wild and testing a bunch of stuff is, would be a little bit fun and the NDP should look at it and they should really be exploring kind of various think pieces and, and going out there and saying things like, Hey, what about like national profit sharing? We increase corporate taxes by 10% and that all goes to Canadians, right? And it's a way that we bring in like a version of a UBI. What if we went out and we said, Hey, we're going to make it so that uh, any car under $30,000 that's electric is subsidized and any car over 60000 So take the liberal one and just like dial it up to 11 and make their aversion where it's actually helping lower income people too. Raising minimum wages, calling for all sorts of crap. Go out there, see what people immediately go like, oh, that's interesting. Remember the beware of novel concepts challenge. So go out, do a little bit of durability testing on it. Try to figure out what the counter arguments are, see where people will land. But if you want to be known as this fresh, new, exciting party, you're not going to get there with the same old, same old. You're just not. And I think that this is is kind of circling us back to that same point, which is you know, the NDP really need to figure out what is like an exciting NDP platform in 2023 that people will say about fucking time, like that's super popular and I'm on board. And I think in general, the NDP being the third party 
has a really cool opportunity mm-hmm. where they can go out and also look for uh, changing gears here a little bit. Uh, what I would call like, um, well, I don't know what I would call it, but I, I, there are a number of issues where public opinion and um, politician support are misaligned and they come to me more easily provincially than they do federally. Things like um, support for private funding for education. The majority of people don't support funding for private education. None of the parties are going to touch that. Well, a party could touch that, Mm -hmm. right? And so you can go out and you can look for kind of these almost like public opinion arbitrage, uh, you know, opportunities where you can uh, go in and say, yeah, I'm going to jump on top of that. And so the NDP should be seized with that work right now. Carter, jump in. I just want to add one thing, and that is the, the third party piece, right? We used to have third parties in virtually every provincial context mm. as well, right? And what we're seeing is a movement towards two parties, right? And mm-hmm. that movement towards two parties, I mean, we're watching BC United get passed by the Conservatives. I mean, who'd have predicted that, hey, Corey? Um, but this is this is the the challenges is that we're seeing we're seeing significant shifts in how politics unfolds. Um, and the NDP are at risk. The NDP are at risk of not being relevant. And uh, this is the the time to really make yourself far more relevant. Uh, and I would suggest to Jagmeet Singh that this isn't just a reflection on his leadership, but also a reflection on the party in general. And as such, he has he, it is incumbent upon him to to push really hard uh, to define what this party is going to be in the future. Well, look, I do want to say, though, in almost every jurisdiction where we've gone to two parties, the party that's disappeared has been the centrist party, hmm. right? So even when we talk about BC United trying to sit between the BC NDP and the BC Conservatives in Alberta, the PCs evaporated and you've got the NDP and the Wild Road or, or the UCP uh, and so on and so forth down the line, right? It tends to be the provincial liberal parties that just disappear. Well, that's really and, undercutting my point, you jerk. Well, but, you know... You know, I mean, it was a good point, and you just went, fucked me. It's facts. It he hurts. threw facts at you. But hey, but the National Liberal Party, on many issues, outflanks the NDP yeah. on the left. And I mean, certainly in 2015, that was kind of their whole their whole thing, right? So, um, you know, a complicated territory. I'm not saying that... Um, that I think you're wrong that there is on some level an existential risk for either the Liberals or the NDP going forward, because it does start to feel, especially if uh, Pierre Polyev wins the next election, people will start saying, what do we do? How do we bring this together? What's the party we're going to support? What's the party that's out? Um, and I'm not even saying merger. I'm saying you might just see something in like 2011. Yeah, choice. choice. Exactly. Just, so that's all out there. Just to kind of wrap it all up and back to the approval rating point, like I, I like what you two are both putting on the table about go out there, have fun, be bold, try some crazy ideas. Is is Jugmeet Singh the leader to be doing that, right? Like you, Carter, you've brought up this one and done point. He's been through two elections. Like could could he, you know, go after this 80, go reflect after the 80% and come back and be like, yeah, let's let the agreement fall apart. Let's do things differently. Or do you need someone else to be doing that? I, I don't think so. But I, I've been a critic um, for a very long time uh, of Jagmeet Singh. So I don't think that he's uh, capitalized on that star power that he represented when he was elected. The the, the next generation of uh, political talent. I mean, he, 
he was exciting. He was a, he, he was a force. And then he wasn't and isn't. And we don't see him enough. I mean, did we even see him in the run-up to this leadership review? I mean, barely, barely saw him. Okay. Yeah. Well, look, he's been leader for six years. It's, I would struggle to think of when a leader has reinvented themselves after six years. I would. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying it might be unprecedented. Okay. Let's leave that one there, guys, and move into our last segment, our lightning round. I've got one lightning round question for you. Are you going to do it for me, Annalise? Yeah, I'm doing it for you. Alberta Pension Plan Engagement Panel. Guys, they're doing public engagement. Uh, This was announced last week. They're doing an online survey, and then they're going to start doing some telephone town halls, I believe, this week. Uh, There are five 90-minute telephone town halls. They're organized by location. Uh, So basically like a Northern Alberta, Southern Alberta, Calgary, Edmonton, Central Alberta. Then the panel will do a report based on the engagement. Stephen Carter, how many 90-minute telephone town halls is the right amount of engagement in a province the size of Alberta? I mean, they're saying they're going to call every landline and cell phone number that they know that's kind of registered in the province of Alberta. I'm dying to see if I get a call. Uh, it'd be interesting to see who stays on. I'm, I've, you know, I think everybody's done these things. They cost X yeah. number of dollars per. I mean, it's a, it's a interesting, unique or not unique, but it's an interesting engagement strategy. Um, I'm not a huge fan, but they do have some value. Um, is this going to be the tool, the ticket that really shows people the value of the, uh, the Alberta pension plan? I, I don't think so. Um, but I mean, it really depends on how how these things are conducted. They are not being conducted as a true engagement program. I mean, they're a sales program. This is sales. This is an engagement. I've often, I mean, Corey knows that I railed against this when we were at Hill and Knowlton. Almost all engagement programs aren't engagement. Almost all of them are sales. We know what we're going to do. We just, we have to check off this box that says that we engaged with, with Albertans. If they're planning to do a referendum, which it still sounds like they're committed to, why on earth would you bother engaging? What's the fucking point? Except that it's more sales. I listened to a bunch of podcasts this weekend, um, except ours. And uh, (laughs) I'll tell you, the number of ads promoting the Alberta pension plan is staggering. They are going all in. This is like, this is like the best work we ever saw from Corey. Except we're seeing it by you know hacks, hacks. I tell you, Corey. Um, and it's it's frustrating because I just think, you know, this isn't what we. This isn't what it's designed to do. You're not supposed to just, you know, conduct an engagement process in order to get the outcome that you desire. But here we are. This is what's going to happen. I have so many follow-ups, Carter, but it's lighting around. Just one. Do you have a landline still? No, no. Oh, I good. may. I think okay. my cell good. phone is is registered though. With uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Corey, how many ninety-minute engagement sessions? It's a good number. <laughs> the reason why it's broken into five. I'm sorry to be a downer with the actual technical answer. Is because there's only so much capacity. Like you couldn't do the entire province all in one shot, and that's the only reason they're going to do multiple. It's certainly not to allow more people to opine and and jump in and give their give their view on this particular matter. Because it's clear that's not going to happen. It's going yeah. to be even more so than I think uh, a lot of the time with these things. 
straight sales, straight sales. It's going to be, so let me tell you how these telephone town halls have historically worked, right? Historically, and I'm not talking necessarily for the government, I'm just saying in general, you do, you call out, if somebody has a question, they can press one that directs them to an operator who says, hi, what's your question? They write down the thing in the system. And then the MC then says, oh, uh, a premier, we've got a, we've got a question from Bob. Bob wants to know about X. And he repeats the question. So Bob himself doesn't get the chance to ask the question because you don't want Bob to do a bait and switch on you and change it. And it just makes it almost impossible for Bob to do it. And if Bob does bait and switch, you kill Bob and you say, oh, we seem to have lost Bob, but we do have his question. So why don't you go ahead and, and talk about the question, right? It doesn't even necessarily sound like you're going to get that. Mm-hmm. I mean, nope. maybe you'll get that, but like... It's going to be mostly just people talking about how this thing slices, dices, makes julienne fries, and you can have it for four easy payments of nineteen ninety five on your Discovery card if you act in the next 30 minutes. We'll also throw in an Alberta police force, right? Like, it's just, it's just <laughs> it's not... It's a pitch right there. It's not going to be uh, kind of like high nutrition. What I think is hard for me to imagine is that uh, it's going to materially change people's points of view if they're not willing to let in counter-arguments. Because some people who are like, well, I'm opposed, but I'm willing to hear it out, may very well be turned off by the sales-like nature of it. So um, we'll see. We'll see. But I just, you know, I don't think that um, it, it can be a powerful tool for getting information out. Certainly in government, we used it a lot for emergencies. Certainly it's a way that you can talk to a lot of people. But frankly, like you talk about the whole province, five things. We did this with the budget many times. Do you remember them? Did they change your mind about the budget? Did they have an impact? Probably not. Okay. Well, Carter, you you get in on that call and tell us all about it, and we can talk more about engagement at a later date. I'll probably be too bored to do it. We'll try. Just give it a try. Just try. Just try. Just try, Stephen Carter. Just try. (laughs) We're going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 1260 of The Strategist. My name is Annalise Klingbeil, and with you, as always, Stephen Carter and Corey Hogan. (laughs) 